right, I think that's all the logistics uh, as we kind of move into um, um, our sermon today. Uh, we're looking at uh, Genesis chapter 5 this morning, so you can turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5 uh, as we kind of um, finish out, for this year at least, our Genesis series. Um, believe it or not, we're kind of coming out to the end of um, the year, so we'll be moving into Thanksgiving and Advent and um, and I'm sure Shannon will pick back up in Genesis somewhere next year, early next year, I think. But um, So this will be uh, kind of, I think, the last one for this year. Um, but turn to Genesis chapter 5 as we kind of look at what God has to tell us from Genesis chapter 5. Um, a few years ago, <clears throat> uh, Lindsay and I got to uh, visit the Ellis Island, uh, the Statue of Liberty in Ellis Island. So if you're not familiar with uh, uh, where that is, it's in New York City, and it's... Um, I, grew, I spent uh, a good portion of my schooling in, in New York City, but, you know, when it's kind of like one of those things that when you're in New York City, you don't do any of the tourist stuff because you can't deal with the tourists, so you just kind of do your own life. But once I relocated to Texas, Lindsay and I got an opportunity to go back and visit. I think Lindsay was uh, six months pregnant with Ezra when we got the opportunity to do that, and we got to, you know, do the whole Statue of Liberty, climb up to the top. Um, you know, this is how you know you were first-time parents. You don't uh, think about all this through. Uh, so we uh, we booked the uh, booked the um, uh, tour all the way up to the crown of the Statue of Liberty, and um, I didn't know. I thought that was elevators, but uh, turns out it's a narrow staircase that winds all the way up to the top. And so, having a six-month uh, uh, old pregnant uh, woman and myself and Lindsay's parents. We walked it all the way up, and, um, and you can't stop. So if you're going up, everybody's going up. There's no, like, break spots. You just have to make it all the way up and then make the way all the way down. So, uh, int- uh, you know, uh, sufficient to say it was an interesting, uh, interesting way up and down. It was really cool. But one other thing we got to do while we were there was to visit Ellis Island, which is essentially an uh, island that's attached to the Statue of Liberty or, or uh, close to. And Ellis Island, for those that don't know, is, uh, used to be an immigration processing station in the United States for uh, ships that um, came to the New York uh, Harbor. And so I was just doing some research. It said, between 1892 and 1954, about 12 million immigrants arrived at this port. And so they were all processed, and paperwork and medical stuff were done through, uh, through Ellis Island. So it, it, is, it has some historical uh, importance. Uh, and so one of the things you get to see when you go there is how the, the room is set up, how they were, the hallways that they went through, the staircases, it's just mind-boggling to uh, think about uh, 12 million people uh, going through um, that small building. But um, kind of after you make, the way, make your way through the whole Ellis, uh, the Ellis Island building, you kind of come to the end. They have this um, uh, kind of as a last way to get some more money out of you. They uh, kind of say, hey, if you pay us some, for a minor fee, you can put your name in this database and uh, figure out if your ancestors were one of those folks that came in one of the ships. Uh, to New York City. Um, so I'm an immigrant to the United States, but I'm more of a recent immigrant, so I never spend my money there. But uh, it, I always have, uh, thought it was fascinating to see um, what it would look like to kind of search a database and see if your family, based on your last name, if any of your family uh, came, through, came into the United States through the New York City Ellis Island. Um, so uh, as, as I think about that and think about ancestry and genealogies, um, most of you are probably familiar with Ancestry.com and 23andMe. These are all ans- uh, 
essentially ancestry service. Essentially, if you um, give them some of your saliva and your DNA, they will do this. Uh, they will search their millions of uh, records in their database and identify who your ancestors are going back God knows how long. I'm not sure how they're verifying these things, but this is, this is what they proclaim to do. Um, the, the gro this industry apparently has been growing uh, significantly since 1999. Uh, so in the December of 2020, a few years ago, one of the biggest investment firms actually purchased Ancestry.com uh, for $4.7 billion um, uh, to, because they see it as a booming industry. Uh, and so, uh, believe it or not, um, uh, understanding family trees is a booming business, if you ever were wondering. Uh, but I, I say all that to, uh, to kind of as, as to set up our chapter today in Genesis chapter 5. So I kind of have the opportunity to talk about uh, uh, one of the first genealogies in the Bible. So yay, exciting, this will be fun. <laughs> Um, but genealogies are an important component of the narrative arc in the Bible. Uh, and so there's lots that we can learn, and I hope that this will be a time of uh, being engaged, um, and that, this will, that God will speak to us as we kind of look at the characters that are listed here in this genealogy. Uh, it, essentially, what genealogies do for us is it fills us the gaps that we often don't pay attention to or don't have. So as readers, it's important to recognize and spend time looking at these genealogies and carefully studying them. It often helps us understand important details uh, and the narrative arc of the biblical characters. And also, uh, I think one of the important things it does is it shows us what's the generational impact of people when they follow God and when they decide not to follow God. I think as uh, modern people, we are so very much in the moment. I think I've shared the story about uh, we thought the microwave was a good invention, but then microwaves are too, uh, too slow. And so, you know, we, we live in this go, go, go um, culture, and we, are, uh, we tend to be short-sighted. But what studying genealogies allow us to do is to see the generational impact of choices. How does, what does the generational impact of people that choose to follow God and choose not to follow God? And so let's, let's read uh, Genesis chapter 5 today, and we're going to read the whole thing, just like Shannon read chapter 4 last week. We're going to read the whole thing. So uh, again, stay awake. Don't drift off. Uh, one of the things that if you're inclined to do so, uh, keep track of how the genealogies are listed. It, it will sound repetitive, so pay attention to that. Uh, pay attention to where it deviates from their repetitiveness. Uh, and so I think that will help us kind of figure out what the reader, the writer of Genesis is trying to tell us. So let me read Genesis chapter 5, and then we'll dig in. Uh, Genesis chapter 5 says, And this is the book of ge the generations of Adam, when God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he had fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he had fathered Canaan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. 
Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Canaan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Canaan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All right, y'all still awake? All right, still with me? Okay. All right, so last week we looked at some of the genealogies of the generations of Cain. Shannon has walked us through uh, Adam's firstborn son um, and his family tree. That's kind of what we looked at end of chapter 4, so if you missed that, I encourage you to go back and look at it. There were a couple of things that I think um, flow into today's sermon, but if you missed that, I would highly encourage you to go look at it. But today we're going to look at Seth's uh, family tree. So Seth was the son born to Adam and Eve uh, after Cain had murdered Abel. And so this will serve as an important backdrop as we look at uh, today's passage. So by setting these two family trees next to each other, Cain's family tree um, uh, and Seth's family tree, we understand, or the writer of Genesis is trying to tell us some important components of what it means to follow God and what happens when you decide not to follow God. And so I have this uh, chart up here. Hopefully that comes up. Okay, here we go. Uh, again, uh, for the Bible nerds, this is helpful, so I don't have to explain everything verbally. Uh, easier to, to point to a chart. Uh, so on one hand, we have Cain, uh, and um, we were introduced to not only Cain last week, but also a character called Lamech. And so this is a different Lamech that we read today. This is Lamech in the uh, line or lineage of Cain, um, uh, or in the lineage of Adam through Cain. And so Lamech is the seventh generation from Adam in the line of Cain. And Lamech, um, as we read last week, uh, was a bloodthirsty descendant of Cain. He was violent, he was disobedient to God, and he took multiple wives and uh, disobeyed God in multiple ways. But he had no regard for life, and he abused the promise that God had given Cain that God would then uh, act, um, repay anybody that hurt Cain. So Lamech took this 
as a license to murder and kill. And so his place in the genealogy should tell us that his sin had reached its pinnacle, being the seventh generation uh, from Adam in the line of Cain. Compare that with Seth's lineage on the other side. Uh, we just read about that in chapter 5, and this chart kind of will help you see who those, uh, th- those uh, patriarchs are in the line of Seth. If you go down to the seventh generation from Adam in the line of Seth, who do we see? Enoch. Right? Enoch is the, um, is the seventh generation from uh, Adam in the line of Seth. And Enoch now becomes an important contrast to Lamech in the Bible as, as the writer sets these two family trees next to each other. So while Lamech is bloodthirsty, Enoch is uh, obedient to God. Where Lamech is disobedient, Enoch walks with God and pleases God. And, you know, if you've been around church and, or heard sermons, you know seven's an important number in the Bible. It, it indicates completeness or perfection. And so one is the perfection, a picture of a perfection of sin, and the other is a perfection of an intimacy or walk with God. And so the writer is highlighting these two characters for us as, uh, with the help of this genealogy. Uh, look at uh, verse 24 here uh, as, we, uh, as, as we look at uh, how the writer describes, um, as, as he describes Enoch. It says in verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Um, and then the 10th generation, just like 7, 10 is an important number in the Bible. I won't um, um, kind of go into too much detail, but if you think about where 10 appears in the Bible, ten, God speaks 10 times in the creation narrative. Uh, we see uh, Noah being the 10th generation in the line of Seth. Noah's name means rest. Um, we see the 10 plagues and the 10 commandments, and we see uh, the, ten, uh, the number 10 appear multiple times. But we're going to look at Noah when we pick Genesis back up later, so I'm, I'm going to um, not talk too much about Noah today, but uh, I just wanted to kind of mention that he is the, Noah is the 10th generation in the line of Seth. We'll spend our time this morning looking at Enoch and his walk with God. A couple of insights for the Bible nerds in the room, a couple of things that stand out to me uh, from this passage. Now, important uh, to notice that these clues or the way this narrative structure is set up is not random. It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. The narrator is trying to tell us important things about these patriarchs. So first, you'll notice that uh, Enoch has lived 365 years, which represents for us, 365 days, which is a solar year. Um, he has the shortest lifespan uh, in the genealogy, in the line of Seth. Um, he appears between two patriarchs that have the longest lifespan in the genealogy. So Jared, who lives 962 years, and Methuselah, who's lived 969 years. So if you ever have Bible trivia and asks who is the, the longest living person in the Bible, it's Methuselah. Just make a note. Um, the other thing we notice, like I already mentioned, is the pattern that the narrator uses as uh, they tell us about Enoch. Uh, so if you look at, um, look at a couple of verses here that I want to point this pattern out, look at verse 12. I think it's going to be on the screen up here. It says, verse 12 says, when Kenan had lived 70 years. And then look at verse 14 where Kenan's gene- genealogy ends and it says, thus all the days were Kenan were 910 years and he died. So he lived, he fathered, and he died. That's the pattern that the, the whole chapter uses, except for Enoch. Uh, let's look at one more example, Mahalalel. In verse 15, it says, Mahalalel lived 65 years. He fathered Jared. 
Mahalalel's genealogy ends in verse 17. It says, thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. However, when we come to Enoch, and look at his genealogy in verse 22, um, it starts out the same way. Enoch had lived 65 years, sorry, in verse 21, he fathered Methuselah. Verse 22 says, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. That's all the days of Enoch were 365 years. But this is the additional narrative component that uh, the writer gives us. and says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So clearly the narrator wants to know that Enoch was not like his predecessors or his descendants. He was not like the other patriarchs around him. He lived a different way. He had a different walk with God. And Enoch's life was not defined by how long he lived or how many kids he had, but rather it was defined by his close walk with God, his close union with God. And his taking, being taken away implies that he did not experience death like the other patriarchs, like the rest of his family. It just tells us that he was transformed into a different mode of existence as we look, in different, as we look at other passages that we'll come to. Now, there is some debate among scholars about what actually happened to Enoch. So up to this point, uh, I've always uh, believed that Enoch hadn't died, uh, but uh, kind of preparing for this sermon, apparently there are a lot of scholars that believe Enoch did die, uh, but uh, that's a rabbit hole that we won't go down today. Uh, but there is, some, uh, there is some, you know, up to this point, I believe that Enoch um, was taken up, as it says, uh, same with Elijah. Uh, and that Elijah and Enoch will come back at some point later in, 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 the, in, in history and then be martyred and die. That's what I've always believed. Uh, but um, apparently this, the scholars defer on it, and I'll let you guys kind of go down that rabbit hole as you all have time. But as I reflect on this passage, I don't think the key detail that we need to focus on is what happened to Enoch. But rather, the focus needs to be, or the writer of Genesis is asking us to focus on Enoch's intimate walk with God and the fact that he did not experience death like the rest of his family. So I want us to camp there today, uh, this morning, as we look at Enoch's walk with God and what he can teach us about walking with God. Cool? All right, so let's start with the what. What does it mean to walk with God? Um, okay, just fair warning, there's going to be a lot of New Testament passages where we're going to jump and look at a few passages. And the reason for that is the New Testament authors or writers constantly refer back to the patriarchs and this genealogy and tell us to pay attention to certain details about their life. And so it's just good for us to see, okay, what did the New Testament writers say about these characters? So let's look at what the writer of Hebrews says about Enoch in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5. Hebrews eleven five says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And so here we see a couple of additional um, details about Enoch. Uh, and if you, believe, if you know what Hebrews 11 is, uh, um, what do we typically call Hebrews 11? Right, the hall of faith, or it's kind of essentially lists out the patriarchs that are heroes of faith that we need to pay attention to. And so Enoch is listed here. 
Uh, and as you read uh, Enoch's uh, story or account here in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5, we see that he not only had a walk with God, his walk pleased God. There are some translations, even the, the word pleased God is also in, in the Genesis text. It's not in the ESV translation. But if you have other translations, the, uh, the word pleased God is in the um, lineage that we just looked at, in the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. But we, uh, all translations see this in Hebrews 11, chapter 5. So, so again, what do we mean by, what, it, what, what does it mean when uh, it says that, when the Bible tells us that Enoch walked with God? Um, and I think it's important to clarify what this walk means. Um, when I have stretches, uh, when life gets busy for me uh, and my uh, family, I often, and I fall off the exercise bandwagon, which happens often, um, my wife, Lindsay, makes subtle suggestions uh, to help me to get back on this exercise uh, routine. And so it, it oftentimes begins with asking me if I want to go for a walk, right? if I want to go for a walk. And so me uh, being, you know, thinking, okay, walk, casual, be fun. I like enjoying or spending time with my wife, so I mostly say yes. But you see, this was before I kept um, failing to ask her the question, what do you mean by a walk, right? <laughs> So it turns out my wife's definition of a walk is quite different from my definition of a walk. When I think walk, I think a couple of casual walks around the block, about a mile, easy, doable. My wife says walk, and she means uh, the three and a half miles around our entire neighborhood a couple of times. And so, you know, you can just imagine what I think when I think of a walk and step out and then realize, like, I'm actually on a Lindsay walk, not a Stanley walk. And so oftentimes I found myself walk, having to walk the whole thing because I agreed to go for a walk and without clarifying what I signed up for. So now I've gotten smarter and I ask when I'm being asked, uh, is this a Lindsay walk? Uh, is this a Lindsay walk? So the same is true as we think about Enoch and his walk with God uh, to clarify, like, what does it mean for us to walk with God? The scripture in one sense has so much to say about what it means to walk with God. In some sense, that's all of scripture. And so I've picked a few areas for us to focus on because uh, we only have so much time, and, and the Cowboys are playing at uh, noon today, so I want to get you guys out here before that. Um, but what does it mean to walk with God? Um, and so looking at Enoch's life, the first point, and brings us to the first point uh, today, and that is the walking with God is our faith lived out. Walking with God is our faith lived out. Walking with God means that as believers, we live out our faith in God. We act out of trust in God. And one of the key ways we do that, one of the key ways we live out our faith is by being obedient to God. It's by being obedient to God. So Enoch loved God and had faith in God. But he lived out this faith by trusting and being obedient to God. Now there's often misunderstanding among believers how obedience and faith kind of go together. You know, sometimes, somehow we believe that because we're saved by grace, obedience, not sure how this all fits in together. Like, where does obedience kind of fall in? But it's important to recognize that this is not how the biblical authors see uh, obedience and faith. Uh, what the Bible describes obedience uh, as is the natural outworking of our faith. The Bible sees this, again, let me repeat that, obedience is the natural outworking of our faith. 
And so we look at uh, the Bible, and we'll look at a biblical example here uh, in Hebrews 11, as we were just, um, and look at the life of Abel. We see this uh, example being uh, laid out. So let's look at Hebrews 11, chapter 4. I'm not sure we have it on the screen, so, but it's just one verse before, about what we just read. And it says in four, cha- uh, chapter 11, verse 4, again, the hall of faith. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died. Oh, sorry. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And so we see here, Abel, again, somebody that was in the genealogy that got murdered by his brother Cain, shows up in the New Testament hall of faith. And so what the biblical writers are telling us, or the writer of Hebrews is telling us, is that Abel's faith was commended as righteous because of his sacrifice. Abel's faith was expressed by his act of bringing a better sacrifice. Faith wasn't just a mental assent or a belief, but rather it was lived out for Abel by bringing a better sacrifice. I won't spend too much time because uh, uh, looking at uh, faith, we've looked at this in the past, but faith, think of faith as an act of trust, right? If you look around the room, the way you guys are sitting on the chair is an act of faith, right? You believe that the chair is holding you up. If you didn't believe that the chair would hold you up, you would be sitting differently. Isn't that true, right? I have sat on things that wouldn't hold me up as a kid, either because I wasn't supposed to be sitting on it or it wasn't meant to be a chair, but um, those experiences teach you that it's good to have, it's good to be, make sure that what you're sitting on can hold you up. Essentially, that, that's what we mean by faith. It's an act of trust. And so here in Abel's uh, example, we see God saw Abel's sacrifice and was pleased with it and declared him righteous. Now, Abel did not try to please God by bringing his sacrifice or be accepted by God, but rather because he had faith, he lived out that faith by bringing a better sacrifice than his brother Cain. And I think that's an important distinction that I want us to catch. So that means, what does that mean for us? It means that we don't have to work to be pleasing to God. If you've put your trust in Jesus and been reconciled to Him, we are children of God. We've become sons and daughters. We're reconciled to Him as we put our faith in Jesus. We have become co-heirs with Christ, and God sees us as one of His children. And we please God when we live our lives in a way that outwardly expresses our faith in God. Isn't this true even for our own children? Like, right? Our children didn't have to do anything to be our children, right? The bond the parents and children have exists, and that secures their identity, right? Our children don't have to be pleasing for us to be our children. The same with God. When we hear good reports of our children, you know, we rejoice and take pleasure in it. I know when I hear that my son was behaving because he almost never does at home, it's, it's, I rejoice in that. My wife and I was like, thank you, Jesus, you know. <laughs> we get that our, a glimpse that our parenting is working, uh, even though it only works sometimes. But it, this, is, this brings pleasure, and, and we rejoice in that. It's the same with God. We don't do things to earn God's pleasure, but we act and do good because our faith, of our faith, and this brings pleasure to God. I hope that's clear. So, so when we walk in obedience to God by faith, we please God. Okay, so that brings us to the how. How do we walk with God in a way that pleases Him? Two things. 
that I want to look at today, and there's a few sub-points, but there's two ways that I want us to look at on the how question about how, we, how do we walk with God that pleases Him. One, we live in communion with God, and second, we live in communion with others, with God's people. So let's look at what does it mean to live in communion with God. How do we live in communion with God? Two ways I want us to look at today is seeking God and obeying God. First, let's look at seeking. As believers, we are to seek God. And this is because of the nature of God. God is too magnificent to just show up. Right? If God were to show up um, at your breakfast table, uh, history as you know would end. Right? Um, and so because of God's nature... God doesn't sh- uh, jump down our throat or show up with fireworks and flashing lights. You know, there are characters in the Bible that God has done that with, but that's not the natural way God works. He wants us to seek Him. And he, God wants us to seek Him because He's not obvious or apparent. It's something that we must want. He makes room for us to reject Him or to leave Him out of our lives for now. For the time being, we have that option. And so as believers, we must seek God. We must live our lives with this one purpose that Matthew talks about, which is seeking first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added. That must be the purpose, and that is the purpose we are to seek God. So for us to have communion with God, we must, speak, we must seek Him out. And every day, all of us have this choice before us. We have a choice to live for God and under His rule, or we have a choice to reject Him and live in our own rule. Isn't that the whole um, pattern that we've been studying? Where we've seen Adam and Eve, where they've chosen to live in their own rule as opposed to God's rule. We see Cain uh, being disobedient to God and living his own way. But when we see these patriarchs that are obedient to God in this genealogies, we see that they have chosen to live for God and be obedient to Him. So as you seek God by reading His Word, uh, praying or dying to self, repenting of sin, we see Him become more and more apparent in our lives. Um, we see Him becoming more and more present in our lives. And this is true uh, if you've walked the Christian journey faithfully in any, in, for any amount of time. Second, so for that, seeking God to have, be in communion with Him. Second, living in obedience to God. Again, so we looked at the what of obedience a few minutes ago. I want to just spend some time looking at the how. How do we become obedient to God? Uh, Obedience, if you're taking notes, can be described as hearing God's word and acting accordingly. Hearing God's word and acting accordingly. Let's look at 1 John. If you have the Bible, I don't think it's in the uh, the screen here. I want to read from the NLT. Um, But 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 6 It describes what it means to be obedient to God. It says in verse 3, this is 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, and we can be sure that we know Him if we obey His commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love Him. That is how we know that we're living in Him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. So that's 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. So we hear, so as we hear God's Word, whether it's being preached, whether it's in our quiet times, as we read the Bible, we strive to obey Him. 
So once we decide to obey God, we're going to quickly realize a couple of things. What do we first realize? One, we realize, man, we're messed up. Realize, I could use a lot more grace. We realize, I could use a lot more prayer. This is the natural way God works in our lives. This is how we walk with God. And as you strive to obey God, you realize, you keep coming back to God and realize that you need more of Him, not less of Him. You continue to want to rely on Him. And this is how we deepen our relationship with Him. This is how we deepen our communion with God. This is how we deepen our walk with Him. So that's living in communion with God. Second um, is we live in communion with His people. Living in communion with God's people. So first we live in communion with God, and next we live in communion with God's people. So let's look at how we do that. First John, I want us to look at First John again. First John chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. I told you I was going to jump around a little bit. So First John chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. I'll give you a few minutes to look at. As you guys are turning there, remember that here's another Old Testament reference by a New Testament author. So John is making reference back to somebody we've just looked at, Cain. This is what John writes in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. He says, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was off the devil, sorry, who, who was off the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So the first way we live in communion with each other is to love one another. That is what, the, uh, what John is reminding us, is that if we pattern our lives after Abel or Seth, genealogy, we'll, we, will, we will live a life that loves the people that God's put in our lives, as opposed to Cain, who hated his own brother. Cain's... Uh, um, de uh, destruction began by murdering Abel. And by the time you get to the seventh generation, we see his, his um, uh, descendants uh, uh, disobedient to God, uh, uh, being uh, violent and completely rejecting God. And so this is what John is trying to refer to us. He's pointing us to that pattern of Cain's lineage versus um, Seth's lineage. In some sense, as believers, loving one another is straightforward, right? We all recognize it. God's asked us to do it. There's multiple verses in the Bible talking about how we, we know we're disciples when we love each other. But oftentimes, loving one another, especially the ones that we go to church with, is tough, isn't it? Right? It's difficult. They get on our nerves. Uh, they, they don't parent the same way we do. They don't look like the same way we do. And oftentimes, it's difficult. And this is why this command is constantly repeated in Scripture. We struggle with loving the people that God's put uh, us alongside with. And this is why um, the Scriptures remind us the way we live in communion or we walk with God is to have communion with one another. And we do that first by loving one another. So John asks us to reject the way of Cain and do it the way and don't be like Cain. Because what does that lead to? It leads to Lamech. We're trying to get to Enoch, not Lamech. 
And so John says, reject Cain and his way of life, his pattern of behaving. That's, that's the first way we live in communion with each other. The second way we do that is to do good and serve others. Do good and serve others. So not only are we to love one another, but we are to be salt and light in the places that God has placed us in. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 16. It says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let me read that again. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The word pleasing here is the same word that is used to describe Enoch's walk. And so it's good when we see words being repeated in the same context to pay attention. Is there a connection between the two? So what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that we are to do good and to share what we have. And oftentimes this, as the passage, as the verse says, is sacrificial. The phrase that we see, like I mentioned, is the same word that is used to describe Enoch and his walk. And so as we serve people by doing good in the areas that God has placed us in, whether it's in our schools, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our churches, the writer of Hebrews reminds us to do good just like Enoch did. Okay, so those are kind of the two ways that we walk with God in a way that pleases Him. We live in communion with God by seeking Him and being obedient to Him. And we live in communion with each other and His people by loving them and serving them. Simple? Straightforward, right? right so, so, like I mentioned, doing this will, const- will deepen our relationship with God. It will deepen our walk with God. It will make our walk more pleasing to God. Again, not to earn His pleasure, but rather to make Him proud Make him, uh, make him pleased just the way children make their parents. As the band comes up this morning, I want to close with this thought. As I was kind of uh, thinking about this passage in uh, this context, uh, and kind of thinking of where we are uh, as we move into Advent, I was reflecting on this passage and reminded how the story of Jesus, or the Christmas story, the incarnation, is essentially a contrast to Enoch, Right? Enoch was faithful, and he pleased God, and God took him. But God, the incarnation is about God being, desiring to be with his people, coming down and living with his people. In the, in the nation of Israel, that was uh, demonstrated by the tabernacle. We see it being, becoming the temple. But as New Testament believers, the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and we are the tabernacle or the temples of the Holy Spirit. God dwells among his people through his believers. So as you go about your life, whether it's in your workplace or your schools or wherever you find yourselves, remember, you are the bearer of life, or sorry, bearer of light, and God's presence is in those areas because you are present there. And as believers who are walking with God move into the world, the darkness that exists in those areas get pushed back because God's kingdom is there now, and God is working out his plan through his believers. That's one way that, one reason we, uh, we're called to the Great Commission is so that we may add more people to the kingdom of God so that God's kingdom will grow. And remember, so remember, you, are, you might be the tabernacle of God in your sphere of influence, and you may be the only one. And the more you walk with God like Enoch did, the more God will be revealed through you, and the more you will bring glory to Him. Amen? Let me pray for us.
Father, we thank you for this time as we've looked at um, this genealogy of, uh, of Adam through the line of Seth, as we got the opportunity to learn about Enoch and being reminded of his walk with God that it pleased you. Help us as believers to live such a life that we may walk with God, we may walk with you daily, moment by moment, in a way that pleases you. That we might do that by seeking you, making it our one goal in life is to seek you, to walk with you. And we know everything will be also be taken care of when we do that. We pray that you give us grace to be obedient, that we may be on our knees looking to you, keeping our eyes focused on you as we try to live out this life, as we learn to live in communion with each other, with the people that you've gathered here, but other believers that we may love them and serve them as believers we may be known to bring your light into the darkness we thank you for your son the way he was he came to us the way he died for us the way he ascended that we may have the ability to be your children to have the hope that we may not be lost in the sin that we find ourselves in, but that we may have hope that, that through our faith in you, that we may experience your grace, we may experience your righteousness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the way you've loved us in every season of our lives. We pray for the for anybody that is here that is not aware or is not living in the love that you have for them, that you may work on their hearts, that the Spirit may soften their hearts, that your words and your seed may be get planted. Help us as a body of believers to love them, to serve them, that the new good news of your love and your grace may reach far and wide. We ask all this in Jesus' name.